After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, guys, it's that there's always a catch. So when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly on to you. I haven't skipped a beat using Mint Mobile services. I have a great service even when I'm traveling for over less than 70% of what I was paying before. Listen to Uncle Chael and say bye-bye to your overpriced wireless plans, jaw-dropping monthly bills and unexpected overages. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans starting at 15 bucks a month. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash chael. That's mintmobile.com slash chael. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash chael. $45 upfront payment required. That's equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Guys, I'm really into things that add more convenience to my life. It's even better when it also comes with safety in a high-quality package. I'm talking about my Eufy Video Lock. I'm still loving this thing. I love this thing so much that I'd like to invest in the company. I am so impressed with this product that I'm willing to back it. And if anyone out there knows how I can do it, please reach out. You gotta check it out for yourself. I'll probably do a quick social post, but for now, just search UV Video Lock. Do it online. It's a three-in-one smart lock, 2K camera with an audio and doorbell. It's easy to install. It has fingerprint recognition, so I don't even have to remember a code. I can control it all in an app, which again, the convenience is such a big plus for me. We are always on the go, and being able to monitor our home on the road is such a nice option. Not only that, I don't have to rush to the door if the doorbell rings. I can either open the door or ignore whoever's at the door by vetting them through the app. There is no monthly fees for security video storage. The battery is rechargeable, and each charge lasts about four months. This Eufy Lock is fantastic, and I highly recommend it. Search Eufy Video Lock online. That's Eufy, E-U-F-Y Video Lock, or visit eufyofficial.com backslash video lock to see how you can gain complete control of your front door. What's happening, guys? Happy Wednesday, and thank you for joining another special episode of Your Welcome.
There's been a rumor going around about Charles Oliveira and Justin Gaethje. I love it. And by the way, when you look at the pieces left on the board, it seems like it's going to be Justin Gaethje and Charles Oliveira. So Charles Oliveira would like a title shot. Okay, great. No surprise. Definitely good enough to get one. And all the boys want a title shot. I mean, I'm not bringing you anything that you actually needed to be told, but it's relevant to the story because his manager came out and said, and I quote, Charles Oliveira wants a crack at the UFC title, not Justin Gaethje. So Charles Oliveira's manager, Diego Lima, then came out and said, he's won eight fights in a row. So his manager, Lima, then come out and said, he ran over Tony Ferguson. Tony had won 12 fights until the title fight up to that point. He's very good, and he made a very compelling case for him. Charles Oliveira came out and said, and that is why Charles Oliveira is not getting the title shot. I mean, in all fairness, it's a very sound argument. The guy's handsome. He's the new kid on the block. He's got everything going for him. And by the way, I'm not here to hold him back. He's going to get his title shot. He might even get the damn title. That guy's a stud. I'm on board. But when the most compelling things and the most interesting things that are said about him since his, his biggest win over Tony were said by his manager, that's why he's not getting the title shot. Where is Oliveira standing up to this? And by the way, Oliveira, even if on accident, made his fight with Gaethje very interesting because he said, I want the title, not Gaethje who got steamrolled. Well, no Nobody talks bad about Justin Gaethje, and if you do, you don't get away with it. So, I mean, it's one of these things where he has now aligned himself with Justin Gaethje, and that's a very interesting match. There is no title shot, though. Now, Oliveira could be out there hustling. I don't think that Oliveira is one of these guys, and you will meet these guys. You're going to run the Corey Sandhagens of the world are out there that don't have any idea what's going on, even in their own division. And Corey, by the way, I hear you're a very nice guy. I'm not looking to pick on you, but you're a great example of a guy that doesn't know what in the hell's going on with in his own division. I don't think Charles is that upside down and backwards. I think he's aware that the current champion is in some kind of a purgatory saying he's done with an organization saying not quite yet. I think he's aware that the sport's biggest star, Conor McGregor, is returning in two weeks. I think that he's aware that he is the guy with how to match. History says go through a top contender, get a match. Gaethje was the number one contender and former champion. I don't know that he actually thinks that he's holding out for a title shot, but I also would have no way to know because Charles Oliveira has said the foggiest idea what he's thinking. The foggiest idea what he's doing. He hasn't gone on social media. And by the way, a picture is worth a thousand words. He hasn't dropped videos on Instagram of him training, of him running, of him on the scale, of him doing pull-ups. I mean, fill in the blank. He's not doing anything, but his manager did make a very compelling case that he's won a whole bunch of fights and he's a pretty good fighter. I don't disagree. His win-loss percentage is good in that division. It's not as good as Gregor Gillespie's. So is that what we're going to go off of? Now, this isn't going to hold him back forever, but you see a significant difference here. Whenever message that I'm bringing to you from Charles Oliveira, I'm getting through his manager because Charles Oliveira has said, you see the problem. And by the way, dismissing Justin Gaethje, saying Justin Gaethje got steamrolled, I mean, even if on accident, that fight, at least for me, cannot get here quick enough. There appears to be mixed reviews uh, going out there, mixed reports, better said, on Shogun. And Dana had come out about oh, around Tuesday and said that Shogun was retired. And I don't know in what context. Context. I heard this actually from a friend. So I don't know if Dan did, did an interview or it was a press day or he congratulated him on Twitter. I don't know how this came out, but Dana somewhere had stated that Shogun was retired. I don't know that I've heard that from Shogun, but in the event that our last Shogun fight has taken place, have you ever heard a bad word said about Shogun ever by an opponent, a former opponent, a teammate, a friend, a family member, anyone that knows him, even a fan, one single bad word. It's one of those things. And I kind of share that experience. Experience. 
I met Shogun a number of times. Our interactions were very light. He did not speak English. It was one of these things, but he was very humble guy, very quiet guy, very forthcoming guy. And I remember the first time I saw Shogun or even heard the word Shogun. There was a tournament in Colorado in 2003. And if I'm wrong, it was in 2002. They call it the toughest tournament in the history of MMA. And I'm trying to remember, it was an eight man one night. I was in the tournament. Forrest Griffin was in the tournament. Babalu went on to win the tournament. Shogun was in the tournament. Jeremy Horn was in the tournament. Horn was actually ranked number one in the world at that time. In front of everyone. In front of Anderson. In front of everyone. Number one. Uh, there was a guy in the tournament that was a Brazilian boxer. Real strong, good looking guy. He went out in the first round, but he, he was pretty good. And there was another guy in there that was a Russian who had just beaten Randy Couture. And Randy was like the world champion at that time, but somehow went over to Japan and had this match. I don't know a lot about that guy, but if you got to win over the heavyweight champion and all of a sudden uh, you're in this light heavyweight tournament, it was just a really tough night and Shogun was in the tournament. Trevor Prangley was in the tournament. I think that rounds out the eight. And Babalu and Shogun met up in the semifinals and everyone knew who Babalu was. Babalu was the favorite to win the tournament. Horn was ranked number one in the world, but that was at middleweight. So even though the number one ranked guy in the world was in the weight, this was at light heavyweight. Babalu was favored to win it, but Babalu meets up with this guy named Shogun. Good fight, gets to the ground. Babalu puts a triangle, taps him out, moves into the final. Set that story aside. Shogun then goes on his run. He goes over to the Pride organization and he tears through it. I don't even know if he went the distance for a period of time. He had four, five, six, seven fights, finished them all. I think one did go the distance, but then that added to the folklore of Shogun. Oh my gosh, this guy doesn't get tired. This guy can push the pace. It was one of those deals. And one thing that Shogun had is he was a shootbox guy. Rafael Cadero, shootbox, but Vandalay was on that team. And this is when Vandalay is the scariest guy walking the planet. And Vandalay was telling anybody that would listen, this guy right here is the next best thing. They ended up in a tournament together in Pride. It wasn't a one-nighter or something along those lines. I don't I don't think, but they end up in a tournament together and they were on opposite sides. And Vandalay was telling the media, I tell you right now who I'm going to have in the finals. I'm going to have my teammate. And Shogun was a young guy. He was 25 years old. He was no more brash back then than he is now. There was a bit of an allure around him. For the same reasons that Vince McMahon doesn't let Brock Lesnar talk, that's by design, to create an allure and a mystique that is more attractive than the attraction it could be itself. That was the thought on Brock. That's the way it worked on Brock. That's the why Brock doesn't do a lot of interviews. I only bring that to you because every now and then in MMA, on accident, it happens. It happened with Shogun. He was just this mysterious guy, and he was very young, and he had a nasty, nasty skill set, largely based around Muay Thai. He would grab you and knee you right in the face. He, he would elbow you. He would chop your legs. He would use hands. He was great with condition. I just bring that to you because the only loss that he had was to Babalu that anybody had seen. So Babalu gets into the UFC and one of the big things on Babalu was that he beat this Shogun. I'm trying to remember how that tournament with Vandalay and Shogun went. One of them won it and they did not meet up. But one of them, something happened as to why they didn't advance. They got hurt. They got sick. They pulled out. They got caught. I can't remember what it was, but one of them did go on to win it. And so when Shogun comes into the UFC, he's got a ton of buzz around him. He had so much buzz around him that Babalu had buzz for beating the last one to beat him. That's how good Shogun was. And Shogun got brought
brought in and he was going to go over right away. They were going to shine him up, bring him in there against Forrest Griffin. Forrest was a huge deal. All right, you guys know that. Still is. So he's going to come in. He's going to beat Forrest. He's going to take this rub. Forrest is going to stay a star because it's Forrest. And now Shogun's going to become one. That's the plan. Forrest had others. Now, history has gone on and worked itself out just fine. Both of those guys became world champions. They can share that moment. I'm just reminding you of Shogun because that might have seemed like a really long time ago. In fairness, it was. 2007? Top of my head? 2000? That's probably a good guess. 2006? So Shogun is now talking about, or at least Dana is talking about, that Shogun is going to retire. And he's one of those guys that will go out, liked by everybody. I mean, I'm literally challenging you. I'm asking you a sincere question. Have you ever heard a bad word said about Shogun? That's by anyone ever. Even in passing, some jerk that's cheered against him one night and said, no, it was it was just one of these things and he was so durable and he was so tough and he appeared to really love the sport. I, I don't have any idea why Shogun would still be doing the sport unless he just loved it. He just loved to compete. This wasn't like some kind of a financial issue or he secretly got a gambling problem or he got robbed by a manager. I mean, you hear these horror stories. That wasn't, that's not what this is. I'm not positive that Shogun wants to be done. I competed with Shogun. It, it was so long ago, 2013, but that was going to be his last fight. That's the only reason I inserted myself there, but that was going to be his last fight. He was talking about it. It's going to be my last one. Somewhere along the way, it stopped being one and somewhere along the way, he goes, I'm going to do three more. <laughs> and then somewhere recently, he won three in a row. If you go look at Shogun's record and each fight was about to be his last fight. Not only was he saying that, but even the promotion was kind of, well, yeah, you know, probably going to be it for him. And then he go win or he go be very competitive. But there was never a dull moment. And he wasn't the personality and the attraction. He wasn't these things. And generally that doesn't work. But there was such a mystique around him, largely because of Vandalay. Vandalay had control of the media. He had everybody listen. And Vandalay was putting him over. Vandalay was feeling things in the practice room. He goes, man, this guy's a stud. I see how hard he works. I'm established he's not, but I'm giving him the rub. It was a cool move by Vandalay. I hope Shogun gets what he wants. I, I don't have an opinion of if I hope he retires or if I hope he fights again. I hope he gets to do what he wants. I don't sense that there's being a forced exit on him. But I also haven't heard from him. I haven't heard that he said he's done. So let's see what happens. So Junior Dos Santos, now I got to laugh at this, but I'm not laughing at Junior. This is just a funny thing from where I'm sitting. So Junior fights Surreal Gone. I'm going back. And they get clinched up against the fence and Gong throws an elbow. It hits Junior, right? I got to just say it hits Junior. It sure looked like it hit him behind the head, but that still doesn't make it illegal. Even though you cannot hit behind the head, that doesn't make it illegal if you hit behind the head. In that, once the punch leaves, right, like a ball, once the ball is thrown, if any of the players move, but the ball's already in motion, it's fair. So once the elbow is thrown, if Junior's head, by example, turns, even if it hits him in a spot that would normally be illegal, it is now fair play. I don't remember the strike well enough to know if that's what the call was, but it was reviewed and the call was determined it was fair play. The other thing with the strike that Surreal threw is it was an elbow, but what does elbow mean? What the hell does elbow mean? If you go hit anything with your elbow, you're going to wish you hadn't done it. Elbow means forearm and a forearm is long. So yes, a part of the strike could hit Junior behind the head, but if another part of the strike hit 
hits him where it's clean, the whole shot is deemed clean. I'm not here to argue the rule. I'm attempting to explain the rule. So if either Surreal threw the punch and then Junior's head turned, or Surreal threw the strike, but it was with a forearm that's 12 inches long, if any one of those inches hits something legal, the whole thing's legal. I'll give you an example that Big John always gives when Big John comes into a locker room to give a speech about that specifically, specifically where a punch can go. Hit if, if, if you're ever in the side, of his head's turned in any way. You're not coming right at the face. Touch his ear. If any part of your glove touches any part of his ear, wherever the rest of that hand went, I will allow. If you are behind his ear to the point that no part of your hand touches the ear, I'm going to call you for it. That's straight. That's straight for Big John. So I only bring that to you because it was one of these moves. It was one of these moves where it just depends how you want to see it. Do you want to see that something struck Junior in the back of the head? If that's what you want want to see you're gonna see that do you want to see that part of that long strike also touched the legal range because you're gonna see that too now I digress in telling you that but I cannot proceed without making sure that you have that backstory so just to remind you what happened gone hits him with the elbow gets the fight stop junior goes down ref steps in everything's cool in the gang they're at the apex and then when they replay it like as those guys are standing there Bruce buffers in the ring about to make this announcement they're replaying it on the jumbotron and junior looks up and sees that's an illegal strike and he's like you know come to think of it the back of my head hurts he walks right over to gong this is live he grabs him and he points up and he makes surreal look at it now this was an interesting moment for surreal because it was a very real moment and he couldn't have been a cooler guy he said i'm sorry he said, man, I'm sorry, I see that. So now when the interviews take, and it was, a, it was kind of awkward. He got Junior complaining on the spot to the guy that won. This is Surreal's moment. That's a hard fight. That's a tremendous win for anybody. And But Junior's pleading his case, and there's his evidence right there, and we're all watching as a viewer. It was a very captivating moment in that regard. So they interview Surreal, and they asked him, was it illegal? And Surreal said, yeah, I think it might have been. Like, he did not start to argue whether it was or was it. The referee made his call. This is, but it might have been. You know, I saw that replay, and it's one of those rules that even fighters don't know about. Like, there's not a lot of fighters that you can grab and go, "Hey, what? What is that elbow strike rule?" They may not know the Big John story that I just told you. Hey, make sure any part of your hand touches any part of the ear, and I'll let the strike go. It misses the ear. I'm taking a point away. So surreal may not have known what to say, or he just wanted to be nice in the moment, right? You've all probably been there before too. Somebody calls you on something, you just do it their way just to avoid the conflict, not because you agree, you just concede to make this weird social interaction go away. Junior hasn't let this go. As a matter of fact, it's even gone as far as to, it's hurt his feelings. He's saying, look, I got hit. This is on tape. This isn't a dispute. This isn't my opinion. I got hit illegally. Here's the rule. Here's my interpretation. And here's my proof. And nobody's done anything. The UFC hasn't stepped up on my Nobody's done anything. And, but nobody would. That's the part that Junior needs to understand. There's never been a call between two combatants where the organization steps in to go against the referee, ever. We've had weird moments at weigh-in that are on video. You guys will remember Talgate with Daniel Cormier, just by example, but we've had weird moments when the commission makes its decision that it's final. Some will go your way, some are going to go against you, but it is final. The promotion doesn't then just step in. I only bring that to you just so Junior's feelings aren't hurt, just so he doesn't think somebody's sliding him or happy that somebody got away with something. There is a complaint process. There is a 
formal complaint process that Junior's team would have to file with the commission that could warrant a review. And that has been tested before. I can't think and offer you a case in Nevada, but I, I could in California where they brought it in and they did throw it out. I could also offer you one in New Jersey where they brought it in. They looked at it after the fact. And, and the New Jersey one was a very small level regional show, but the guy still complained. The commission looked at it. So we see it the guy's way. They ruled it no contest. There are things that you can do, but just so Junior is very clear in case nobody's explained it to him, that's never going to be done by the organization. The UFC or Bellator or fill in the blank, the organization wouldn't have what's called standing in the matter. That would be between the athlete, the commission, there's a paperwork, there's a process. It's likely to be denied because it's open for interpretation. And I do think that I probably got this one right or that forum because it's so long. Yeah, part of it wrapped around, but part of it didn't. We've seen that with head kicks. A lot of head kicks come up. The foot goes all the way around the head, but the shin's where it should be. Back to the big John example, touch that ear. I'm going to call it fair game. But Junior's not letting it go. And I don't know how far he's, he's going to go, but the application and complaint process is a very painless one. It's very simple, but it is time sensitive. And I don't know what that time period is. There, there is X amount of time. All sports have that. 2008 Olympic Games, South Korean men's gymnastics, overall champion, the most coveted prize in the Olympics, they will tell you is the triathlete. That is not true amongst athletes. The most coveted prize in the game with the actual players themselves from any sport is the all-around gymnastics champion. You are the greatest athlete amongst them. Media will tell you something different. That is what the athletes will tell you. The South Korean one. And he had done some kind of an exercise. And when he came down, they registered his score wrong. The judges gave him the accurate score enough to keep him all-around champion. When they recorded the score, they recorded it wrong. They put an extra zero in. He had like a 0.8 and they put it at a 0.08. Or he had a 0.08 and they pointed at a 0.008. They screwed him. They screwed up. Just an administrative error. They screwed up. So Paul Hahn of the United States comes from out of contention to the gold medal. The Americans realized what happened. The South Koreans realized what happened. The event officials and the IOC that was present realized what happened. This was administrative error. However, you had 45 minutes to catch it. They caught it an hour into it. By example, I'm making, the, I'm making that time frame up. It could be as short as three minutes, but you have X amount of time to catch it. They did not catch it. They did not follow their complaint in time. Paul Hahn to this day is the Olympic champion. The South Korean was out of contention. I only bring that story to you because time does matter. If Junior wants to do something, get it done today. Worried about online security? The best way to protect yourself online is by using the privacy app IPVanish. IPVanish is a virtual private network, VPN for short, used on computers, tablets, and phones that secures your connection to the internet and protects your personal information. IPVanish helps protect you whenever you use public Wi-Fi, which is not always secure. When you use IPVanish, your personal data, like your emails, files, even your credit card and banking information, it's all encrypted, helping keep you safe from online thieves. How many times have you Googled something only to have the ad follow you across websites and on your social media channels? Well, that IP address is being tracked. Advertisers and hackers use it to keep tabs on you with IPVanish. Your real IP address is hidden, helping keep your identity safe. And IPVanish has a zero log policy, so they're not recording your internet activity. What you do online stays private online. 
when it comes to internet connections at home and on the go, I know I depend on IP Vanish. IP Vanish is rated 4.7 out of 5 by real customers on Trustpilot. If you care about your internet privacy and you want to get reliable online data protection, then head over to ipvanish.com slash jail. Plans start at $3.49 a month, which is a great price to secure all of your devices. All you got to do is go to ipvanish.com slash jail to start protecting yourself. This John Jones is the Adesanya business. It's hard to let that one go. And you could make a very compelling case that that fight is never going to happen. And you could make a very compelling guess that it's going to happen in six months. But before you stop John Jones's journey in weight upward, Adesanya's got to be Blahovich. So there's really nothing you can do until some of these pieces come into play. However, the pieces and the time frame of the pieces are very relevant if you're attempting to hedge your bet on simply is it going to happen in this regard. We are told that John Jones's next fight will be for a world championship. He can choose if that's at light heavyweight or at heavyweight. He through the media has said that it's going to be at heavyweight. Okay, but that fight is not scheduled and has been stated that it will not be scheduled prior to March. So that would be a best case scenario. It might be later than that prior to March, but keep March in mind because in February is when we're going to know if Adesanya is the champion of the world at light heavyweight. So for Jones to even be offered or even to be lured back into this very massive match, Adesanya has to grab the belt. I bring that to you because there will be, a, even though everybody's like, yeah, John, make your own choice, whatever one you want to do, it's cool in the gang. They still will have an ability to offer John a fight if Adesanya wins, and that's only about five weeks away. So the argument that the fight would never happen is because if John gains X amount of weight and he simply can't make the weight class, the fight can never happen. I know the story will be told that John's scared. I know the story is going to be told differently. That's not what it is. If John can't make the weight, then he can't make the weight. Same reason Stipe is not going to fight Adesanya. Can't make the weight. Same reason Francis isn't going to fight Adesanya. He can't make the weight. So I bring that to you because in the next five weeks, John's not going to gain very much weight. He just can't. So there would be an opportunity to at least say, John, would you like to pull some pans down and come into a bigger fight? Or do you want to wait yet another month in your career that is dimming by the day to see what happens between Stipe and Francis? And there's no guarantee that John gets the winner of that. I realize that's how it's being presented. You don't know what's going to happen in that fight. Nobody wanted to see Stipe and Daniel fight a second time until Daniel upset him the first time. Nobody wanted to see them fight a third time until Stipe took his belt back the second time. You see how quickly things change? It's one of these deals. You don't know. You, you may not even be talking Jones at that weight class as excited as that seems until you see part two between Stipe and Francis. Goes to a judge's decision. One of them clearly gets robbed just by example, but there, there's a lot of things that can happen where, hey, we got to run that one back and it's going to take five months before we can do it and again john like anything right i mean it only goes it doesn't get better it only it only gets worse probably going to want to be busy i don't know that i'm ready to give up hope i do first things first right adesanya's got to get past blahovich blahovich gets past adesanya maybe all of a sudden blahovich becomes a big star and now we want to see that fight okay fair enough i don't mean to discount blahovich blahovich what i'm sharing is i do predict for you whoever wins that fight is going to call out john and i do think that the organization will go to john go hey there's no pressure you've already left this once and we got other plans for what do you want to do here so i'm not ready to give up on it yet i'm not and i know there's i know i know there's a few things that have to happen there's a lot of moving parts
sports, but there always is an MMA. You could argue that fight's never going to happen, and you could equally make an argument that you're going to see it in six months. Guys, let's talk 170, welterweight. Dana has made it clear that he's trying to get Masvidal and Colby together. The fans have made it clear they want those two to get together. But in all fairness, they don't have to, right? I mean, like, there's some fights that are clearly the bigger fight or clearly the fight you want to see or clearly the only fight. You'll have an only fight for, man, this is the only fight I want to, you, you have to do this one. That's not the case. You could put Colby with five different guys. The world's ready to see the Colby show come back. Masvidal is the biggest star in the sport. Feel free to argue if that's Connor, but you get my point. He's no lower than two. He can do anything and people are going to want to tune in. This is not a situation where they this has to happen. It makes sense. The rankings supported. I'd like to see the BMF put up. They got a backstory like no other, but it is time to see those guys back, both, whoever they're standing across. The trouble you run into in the short term is neither one's did a good job of telling the story of who they want to fight aside from each other. Masvidal has essentially laid out the last guy I ever heard Masvidal call out and say that he wants was Usman. But I'm going way back to February. Mar I'm going to a week to two weeks whenever that fight happened. Because I'm going back to more like May or June when that fight happened. But you, you get my point. I haven't heard Masvidal say anyone's name. Colby's only said Masvidal. There's lots of things for those guys to do. But if they don't take us in another direction, we're going to stay right here. And that's where one of the cases get a little bit peculiar. Colby is coming out saying Masvidal's not agreeing to this fight. Dana has supported it by saying, I want to do this fight. And we don't actually know what's going on behind the scenes. But if one of them wants to go in another direction, I would just encourage them to come out and tell us what direction, because you're going to have a lot of fans that get behind you. You could take all the eyes right off of that if there's some reason that you want to go somewhere else, but where is that going to be? And then you look at the Diaz's, and I have them both at 170. I know there was talk of if Nick comes back, he's going to go 155. I know there was talk of that. I have him at 170. His last fight was at 185. His finest work has been at 170. I got him at 170. How long is that experiment until that runs out? And I don't just mean for Nick, I mean for Nate. Well, either one of them can come back, get a fight, get millions, and get a very big fight. But for how long? How long can we play this game? How long do they want to sit in primes of their career, particularly for Nate? Right at the height, man. His last fight was for a championship. It was at Madison Square Garden. The president was there. I mean, right? He, it's a big time. Seems like you'd want to strike. I'm asking the question. Maybe these guys have another plan. Those guys have been like accidental marketing geniuses from Jump Street. But for how long? Then you take a look. Okay, it looks like we're going to have Usman and Burn. Not looks like we've got that. That's going to be done. But then Chemayev is coming on red hot. Chemayev's looking to take everybody's thunder. Leon's uh, looking to stop him. That fight's going to get moved. I mean, there's a lot of things going on at 170. Where's T-Wood in the mix? And even if you want to say, okay, he's not in the conversation with those guys, I'm not steering you out of that. But where is he in the mix? What kind of a guy does he draw into? Is there anything to be said for my wish for T-Wood, which is that he leaves the division and goes to 185? It looks like I'm alone on that one. I've even talked to T-Wood. It looks like I'm alone on that one. That's what I'd like to see. Fresh coat of paint, all new parity, no focus on cut and weight, full focus on trends. Just what I'd like to see. Ponzanibo's coming back. I mean, right? I mean, 170 is one of these very interesting directions right now. But it would appear if you're going to do Kamara and Burns and that's done, okay, fine. Your neck, that's done. So your next step is to identify what match is going to be for the contendership for that fight, which I think is where Colby and Masvidal come in. But if that doesn't come together, then that's where Chemayev and Leon could come in. But I hope that the guys in the division who are playing checkers, and that's okay. Athletes have the right to have tunnel vision to look at their next move. But I hope that they see that the organization is playing chess. They are setting up multiple fights right now for whoever comes to the table and has the best showing to be the number one contender to take on the winner of Kamara and Burns.
returns. Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work, but you want to know what's easy? Bundling policies with GEICO. GEICO makes it easy to bundle your homeowners or renter's insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing, too, because you already have so much to do around the home. Go to GEICO.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. It's GEICO easy. Visit GEICO.com today. That's GEICO.com. Oh, my. So Dana had a lot to unpack. He's doing a press. He's in uh, Abu Dhabi. And, I mean, things are going to get hot. We we are about to kick this year off, right? I mean, ABC, Conor McGregor, Cater Holloway. I mean, we're about to kick some things off, right? And Dana had made a couple of comments. But if you listen to him, it was like, whoa. Somebody asked him a follow-up question. Stay on that. One of those had to do with Jones versus Adesanya. And Dana just goes, look. Nobody get excited, myself included. I want to see him fight as much as you want to see him fight. We got a lot of stuff in the way. And then he laid it out, and it's very, very obvious stuff, right? First off, Blahovich. Adesanya versus Jones doesn't work if Blahovich gets his way. And the next thing is Dana's saying, look, John's at heavyweight now. And Dana didn't finish the thought. Here's where I was wishing and thought a follow-up question would be important because it appears that John's next fight, while being at heavyweight, will also be against the winner of Stipe and Francis. We know that because of a previous press conference where Dana said, yes, John will get an immediate title shot at heavyweight. So we have no idea when that's going to be. And by the way, I'm a little light on the idea that as soon as Stipe and Francis uh, get done, that we just know who John's going to fight. I mean, you got to play that fight out. If something weird happens there, with it being a second fight particularly, it could warrant and call for the trilogy fight where they could just be fighting themselves again. Okay, I only bring that to you because as we have predicted, it's a very tough spot to put John Jones in. I don't I don't like the idea that people are saying John is scared of Adesanya or running away from Adesanya. I just calling John Jones scared. Come on, man. You look a little silly. If John's going to make a commitment to heavyweight and he's going all in, he's burning his boats and he himself believes the one thing separating himself from his goal is putting on weight to make believe then that we're just going to pull him back down. I think that's what Dana was talking about. What am I going to do here? First off, Izzy's got Blahovich. That's the fight I'm promoting because that's the fight I have. John is going to heavyweight. Does he stay at heavyweight? He's going to heavyweight. So we, we've got time in between even being able to offer somebody this match, let alone get it. He was then weighing in on Conor McGregor. So he made an interesting comment. They were asking about Conor specifically and Dana actually said, look, we're, we're good. We're in a good place to use Dana's words. He said, we're in a bad place. Again, to use Dana's words, going back to you remember the, the screenshot of the DMs between Connor and Dana, but it involved Diego Sanchez. Dana said, that put us in a bad place, man. I did not like that. It was a trust issue. And he said, but we've worked through it. We're in a good place. And if you want to know the perfect scenario for Connor, he fights two or three times this year. And one of those is going to be a title fight. Now, the only reason I'm picking that apart, I'm sure you guys would say what Dana said. Yeah, get Connor, get him busy, get him in there for the belt. You'd probably say that too. It's a different thing when Dana is saying a perfect scenario is Connor fights two or three times and one of them's for a title. When Connor's about to fight Poirier, it's different if you're Poirier. If you're Poirier, you're going, wait a minute. I, I got business with this guy. What, what you making other plans that, by the way, are a, are a perfect scenario? What about me? Now, grown men that are cage fighters probably aren't going to get their feelings hurt. I know that's what you're thinking. I'm here to tell you you're wrong. The most sensitive guys you're going to meet are these guys. And by the way, they're very sensitive to what Dana thinks because they respect him. So they're very sensitive. So I was asked this question by my buddy Ryan earlier. He goes, Chill, what would you do? He goes, what would you do if you were going into a match and there was something great set up for the winner as long as it's the other guy? I go, Ryan, that actually 
actually happened to me. I can personalize this, but I had a fight with Nate Marquardt, 2009, and it was a big moment for me. It was a co-main event of a pay-per-view. I had never been in that position. I'd cracked TV, but now you're in one of the feature matches. And they had made it very clear, whoever wins this fight is fighting Anderson for the belt. Now with that said, Nate was a two and a half to one favorite. Nate had already fought Anderson and he'd already worked his way back to earn what they were saying about him. I had just come over from the WEC. So it wasn't the same, but it was we were, be, we were being told that this was the semifinal match until I won. Then that's when you get the big reveal of, hey, that, that deal was kind of only good for Nate. And they showed me some respect, but they didn't give it to me. They ended up giving it to uh, Damian Maya. I bring that to you because I ended up in that spot again. I was going to fight Vitor Belfort, and this was right after Vitor had knocked out Dan Henderson. I bring the Dan Henderson into it for, for time frame. I can't remember when it was. 2013-ish. Get ready to fight Vitor. Contract was signed. I remember Dana came out and said, if Vitor wins, Vitor will fight Anderson for the title. If Chael wins, we'll have to think about it. That's a quote. That's a nice way of saying if Vitor wins, Vitor is fighting for the belt. If Chael wins, which we don't think is going to happen, we're going to give ourselves some room because we're not giving him a title shot. So I only bring that to you because when Ryan asked me, Chael, what would you do? He meant for that to be like a mythical question. I actually knew the answer. Now, here's the other side of the coin. Okay, now you're just talking about personal who's going to get their feelings hurt because they read something on the internet, right? Dana's still got a job to do. He went out and did his job. He got asked a question and answered the question. But I, I would like for you to at least store this in mind. With Dana's comments, which make it sound as though it's a foregone conclusion that Connor's going to win. Okay. Those comments do not help Connor win, not by one inch, not by one point, not by one jab or one cross did Dana just help Connor. The other side of that coin is he did not hurt Poirier or Poirier's chances of winning. Not by one point, one moment, one crab, uh, one jab, or one cross. That's between those two. So for Dana to be asked a question, to candidly answer the question as he's starting to line out a calendar for 2021 in a specific weight class, which by the way is in a weird purgatory, right? You don't know if Khabib's coming back or if Khabib isn't. It's looking as though he isn't. Charles Oliveira just threw this whole thing into a wrench. Michael Chandler's about to have his say in the matter. Hooker's this close to getting himself right back on track. I mean, it's one of these things where, yes, somebody somebody's going to get offended if you're the kind of person who gets offended at that kind of thing. This is the kind of thing you like if you're the kind of person who likes that kind of thing. It's, stop. There's nothing wrong with Dana's comment. I think we would all agree with him. We'd like to see more Connor. I think we would all agree, and Dana included if he if he were asked, a mistake made in the last 12 months was not keeping Connor busy. Connor came back in January. He said, I'm going to do this three more times this year. That was on the heel of John Jones having made the same statement after the same size layoff and then coming back and doing it over and over. I mean, we got more John Jones. Got more John Jones in 2020. 2019, there's a 12-month period. It started in 19 and bled into 20 a little bit. We got more John Jones than you ever had at any other point in his career. So when Connor comes in and makes that statement on the back of Jones, I think there was some legs to it. I think you do too. I think it was a miss. I think we I think we screwed up. I think we should have used Connor when you can use Connor. Connor is fun. Connor has a different commodity. Every single athlete has one commodity, his performance. Connor has a different commodity. Connor is an entertainer. Connor is interesting. It's one of those things. There's, I think if we look back and now you look at what Dana said, where he says, look, we'll keep Connor real busy and one of them's going to be for title fight. Man, he was just telling the truth. Got asked a straight question. He answered it straight. Looking at the straw weights right now, Dana had made the comment. Obviously, the fight that everyone wants to see, that's a quote, is Whaley versus Rose. But if it's not Rose, it's going to be Carla Esparza. Love it. I'm on board. Where is Joanna? And what in the hell's happened with Tatiana Suarez? And Tatiana Suarez is a friend of mine, by the way, who I've never met and we're separated by 15 years in age. So how can we be friends? Well, we just are. We just are. Like, she was a wrestler and I followed her career and I was a wrestler and she followed my 
my career. And then we know a whole bunch of the same people. I've never spoke to her. I don't have her phone number. I would call her right now. But Tatiana, when you see this, contact me. Come on this program. You got to catch me up. Because if you want to know who not only is a top contender any day, I mean, you guys remember Tatiana Suarez, right? She was undefeated and hadn't had a whole bunch of fights. It was like five or six fights, but not only has she not lost, nobody touched her. These were dominant fights. And even within that handful of matches that I just brought up, she had a number three ranking in the world. And the other girls in the world didn't want to fight her. She, in many ways, without captivating the media's mind, she was Hazmat Shemar. Everything that Chemayev's doing, Tatiana Suarez already did. She just did it really fast, and then she got hurt. And she's been out well over a year. Well over. I don't know how long, but she not 2020 wasn't even booked, wasn't even wasn't even looked at. It was somewhere into 2019. I'm trying to remember what happened to her. It was something bad, though. It was something like a neck, or it was something like a back. But whatever it was, she was expected to make a full recovery. I just don't know where we're at on that. That's why I'm asking you. Tatiana Suarez, contact me. Right? We're Twitter friends. There's the, the kids call it DM. Tell me how to get a hold of you. Come on here. Let's catch up on that. I got to catch up with you on a lot of stuff. But I do have to think that when Dana's talking about the fight everybody wants to see is Rose versus Wei Lee. Yes, he's right. Where's Tatiana and where's Joanna? Tatiana was hurt at one point. Joanna did an interview a week ago. We covered on this program where she made three statements. I want more money. I want a title and I want a crowd. But she was not making those as demands. Not by my interpretation. My interpretation was somebody call me up. I'm ready to go. That was my interpretation. Not to mentioned she's able to go two different weight classes, 125, 125, 115, 125. So I'm just asking the question, just asking the question, where is she, where is she in this mix? I like the Carla Sparza, by the way. I like that whole thing. And I think that Carla learned a lot through the Ultimate Fighter. I think she learned a lot as being the champion. I think she proved a lot by the adversity she had to go through to re-become a world title contender. I like that Sparza angle, but there's a lot of praise to go around the women's division right now, particularly at 125. 125 is just very, very competitive, right? And I don't want to be a jerk to the other ladies that have to compete with Amanda. I'm just being a realist when I tell you that's not competitive right now. You'll have to surprise us. You'll have to show us something that our imagination does not already know to show us you're competitive. And the same thing goes with a bullet. We're going to have some fun and we're going to tune it, but they're not competitive right now. There's a big gap. 115? Man, you, I just, everybody I just named for you could be champion. Three of the people I just named for you have been, no, I pull it. Four have been champion. Wei Li's been champion. Rose has been champion. Yoana, they call her champion. Carlo Esparza, champion. And Tatiana Suarez never lost a damn fight in her life. She's never lost a round. Tatiana Suarez came in and did everything that Hazmat Chimaya did. She just didn't have the media behind her. That's true. You go look that up. Any of you that don't know who Suarez is, you go look at the claim that I just made. She's everything that Hazmat is without the media behind her. So I, I will share one thing with you. Pat Barry is very easy to get a hold, to, a hold of. He's very responsive. Uh, responsive and he's very accessible. But Pat Barry will tell me things at times that's like not a complete thought. He'll say, he'll give me a statement that puts me on second base, but I don't know how we got there. I don't know what's first, and I don't know what to expect on third. He does this all the time. I asked him a couple of weeks ago, you guys will remember when it was announced, uh, hey, Rose doesn't want to fight Wei Lee. And Rose is coming out and go, man, I don't know, I don't know who told you that, but you didn't hear that from my mouth. Right, there was this little back and forth, and then it just died down. But you guys will remember that little volley back and forth. I contacted Pat during that. 
what the hell's going on here? What side am I supposed to believe? So Pat tells me the day Rose read that, she ran 25 miles. Okay, does that mean she was so pissed off? She was in such disagree, like Pat, something motivated her to run 25, but was it the fact that she might get the fight? The fact that she just lost the fight and had to burn off this issue? I don't know. Pat always sends me messages, well, I don't know, which is why I can never come on here and give you a video about Rose or Pat, because I don't ever know. Because you don't give me enough information, Pat. Pat, do a better job of giving me information. Tatiana, need to hear from you. Guys, you need to have a second look at Jaden Cox versus Zilmer, okay? Time out. Here's the conclusion that people came away with after watching that match. Cox is rusty, that exact word. You know, Cox was hit in the face by COVID and he's trying to recover. Cox couldn't pull the trigger. I was hearing a lot of these things. Hold that thought on Jaden. You need to know who Hayden Zilmer is. Zilmer is one of the top guys in the country. He hasn't been less than third in the country in two different weight classes. By the way, now with world weights, he's competed in, in three different weight classes in two different styles. You can throw him out there in Greco. That guy's not coming home with anything less than bronze. Any tournament you want to do, any way you want to do it on domestic soil, he's going to be a top three. You put him in freestyle. Any way you want to do it spread over three different weight classes, he's going to be a top three guy and has proven this. He just does it very quietly. I bring that to your attention because if you're going to have a talk of who the overall best wrestler in the country is, right? The same way that Sam Hayeswinkle clearly was making teams in both Greco and freestyle in the finals of Folk. You got to look at Zilmer. That's how good Zilmer is and people just miss it. Zilmer is amongst the overall best in all of America and that's often overlooked. Hold that thought because you need to tie that back into Jaden. These two know each other. The last time I saw them wrestle was in the U.S. Open final. Now, Cox went into that with an Olympic medal. Four months after that match, he had a world championship. Cox won that match 2-0. I bring that to you because these guys know each other. So this whole talk that Cox was rusty or he was feeling himself out or, you know, he's been a little down with the, uh, he did deal with COVID. I hear everything you're saying, but if you want to look at this by the numbers and everything lies, including your eyes, numbers don't. If you want to look at this by the numbers, Cox has gotten better. The best wrestler in the world, two times over, four medals in total, has gotten better. He scored nine points on the same guy that he could only score two points on. The last time, there, Cox was the best wrestler in the world the last time they wrestled and proved it. He already had two medals, but then he got a gold medal four months ago. Okay, he was the best wrestler in the world. He had two points. The same guy against the same opponent doing the same thing now has nine. So I would only ask that you you reconsider that because one, you're greatly disrespecting Zilmer, who does not deserve that. He just is really polite and keeps his mouth shut. That dude's been whipping everybody's ass in every weight class and every style that steps on the mat with him. You need to know that. And then you need to understand that Cox went out and put seven more points on the board than the last time he wrestled the same guy. So regardless of what your eyes told you, Jaden Cox proved one thing. He is better now than when he won the world championship. Hey, all taking a moment to share a new podcast, True Underdog, recently launched by four-time Entrepreneur of the Year Award winner, Jason Waller. It's real. It's raw. It is motivational. If you're looking for inspiring stories and killer entrepreneurship advice, you've got to head over and subscribe to the True Underdog podcast. Jason Waller is the definition of a true underdog. He was raised in a trailer park, suffered childhood abuse, was kicked out of high school, and became a father in his teens. After struggling to care for his young family and hearing the words no and you can't, 
Too many times Jason found the power within and used his street smarts to start three companies from the ground up with his latest venture, Power Home Solar, on the path to becoming a billion dollar enterprise. I don't know about you, but I'm feeling motivated already, and trust me when I tell you, this guy's energy is contagious. Head over to True Underdog Podcast and hear how Jason and his high-profile guests turn their lives around to achieve massive success. Subscribe to True Underdog Podcast on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or your favorite podcast app. Are you guys following uh, Bisping's podcast? Believe you me. Believe you me, if you're not, start. It's excellent. I'm not sure Bisping's not better at that than anything else within the sport I've seen him do, and he's in the Hall of Fame. Really. He, he is that good. He's just very comfortable, and he is not afraid to say it. So I bring Bisping to this, though, because Tony Ferguson had done an interview somewhere. I missed it. Bisping did a recount of that interview. I saw Bisping. So now I'm going to do a recount of Bisping who did a recount of somebody else's interview, right? So how accurate is this information when you play telephone and it's, it's three times removed? But I can at least get you the jest. Bisping had a problem with what Tony said. Tony had weighed in on Khabib. And Tony had said, man, I'm, I'm not totally into this record of 29-0. and 0. If you go back and look at Khabib's earlier fights, some of those were only two rounds, scheduled for two rounds. Now, Bisping didn't like that because that was the rules and the rules were followed and therefore they should go on Khabib. I'm just sharing with you how that argument goes. Take Bisping out of it. I'm just, I'm citing my source where I got this. I got this from him. Let's take a look at what Tony's talking about. And let me explain this to you in case you missed that. What Tony is saying is a minimum fight under the unified rules of mixed martial arts is three five-minute rounds. A maximum fight, by example, under the unified rules of mixed martial arts is five five-minute rounds. So if you're doing anything that isn't that, then you're not doing Doing this. That's a very interesting argument. It's a very interesting argument. And this isn't to dig in or chalk away at Khabib's right. Yes, Khabib is 29 and 0. I'm just talking about the merit of the point of what Tony said. Compare it to another sport. If the Rams go and play the Lakers, two football teams, think of two football teams, but they go and play for one quarter, wouldn't we be right to question how that ends up on their permanent record by coming out and saying, but football is played for four quarters? You played for a quarter. So therefore you're not playing football. Yeah. Yeah. We probably would. We probably would be right to say that. And that's what Tony was talking about. Tony's saying, Hey man, he was doing some fights in some parts of the world that weren't following the unified rules, but his record represented by the unified rules is including those fights. A fight is three, five minute rounds at minimum. He did contests that were scheduled for two rounds, which means he's not doing mixed martial arts, which means he's not 29 and 0. Now, that's not an argument for you guys to take. This is a mindset of a guy who was getting ready to fight him. And that's all Tony let us in on here. All Tony let us in on was a mindset of a guy getting ready to fight a guy who had not only never lost, he never lost a round. I thought it was interesting. I mean, ultimately, Bisping does win this, that that doesn't hold up. Ultimately, Bisping went, but I don't think that, that, that Tony's trying to adjudicate this. I think Tony is just speaking on something, and by the way, he makes a perfectly fair point. What in the hell are you doing in some of these matches that aren't scheduled for the agreed-upon time limit? And I don't know, 
know how it affects me. I'll tell you, early in my career, first fight I ever had. First fight I ever had, one seven-minute round. One seven-minute round. And that's on my record. I don't think that should be taken off. I don't think that should be taken off. And I didn't stop the guy. Khabib was scheduled for, for, for two five-minute rounds, as Tony was talking about. Khabib ended up stopping the guy. So is it a uh, mute point? I had my first match. That's what they did. It was one seven-minute round. By the way, my second match, one seven-minute round. That's just the way they did it back then. There was matches that went on in, in Japan, the Pride organization. They were doing 20-minute matches that were goofy, too. I can't. It was either the first round was 10 minutes, and then the second round was five, and the third round was five, or... or uh, a variation of that. I just share for you that what Tony's talking about is not to bring Khabib down. It's not. I don't think that Tony even meant this to be this big a news. He did the news somewhere and then Bisping picked up and I picked up on Bisping and somebody else will probably pick up on me. It's one of these things where I think that Tony was just talking. Tony did us a favor here. There is a fine line in genius and insanity. And when you have a champion of the world that did it 12 times unblemished, you've got a genius. That's what Tony is. But there's a fine line. There's something that makes him tick. There's something that makes him different. That's where that expression comes from. So Tony was letting us in on how he as a fellow competitor was dissecting, breaking down, and then coping or dealing with a guy who seemed to be invincible in Khabib. I loved it. I loved it from that perspective that this is how Tony was going into this, where, where Tony was not having the weight of the world on his shoulders. And I get that this is a mythical match that was booked five times. It's not going to be booked a sixth. I get it. It doesn't take away from a champion like Tony Ferguson bringing us into a champion mindset of how he was going to beat the unbeaten. I mean, I'm just a sucker for those stories. Something had happened to Buster Douglas right before he knocked out Tyson. It had to do with his mom. And either his mom had passed and he promised her he's going to win this fight before she did, or she was in the hospital and sick when he got on the plane to fly to Tokyo. But it had to do with his mom. But I love those kind of stories. Don't you guys remember Oscar De La Hoya? He'd get in the ring. He'd be doing the face-off. He wouldn't even look at the opponent. He would be looking up. Again, his mother, his mother had passed. He was having a quick conversation with her before he would go out and box with all the Olympic gold medal and all those world championships. But that stuff's very interesting. And I don't think that what Tony did is any different than what those greats did. They had something that motivated them. Dan Gable. Dan Gable just recognized with the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Most famous wrestler of all time. Most decorated coach of all time for the sport of wrestling. But Dan Gable, who destroyed everybody. It was, and it wasn't a matter that he was better. He was tougher, meaner, and more determined. That is why Gable became so famous. It wasn't for any technique or some kind of a slick move that the world hadn't seen before. Gable became known for just putting a pressure that was relentless. It didn't matter if he was ahead by one or by 100. He was coming at you nonstop. He was famous for this. But he shared with the world what made him tick. And at some point in his youth, somebody had attacked his sister. And I believe, I believe she died. If not, I don't mean to make this heavy, but it's a heavy talk because Gable, from the time he was a teenager to an Olympic champion, whoever he was facing, they never found who did it. Whoever he was facing, he would convince himself that's the guy that did it. When he would be in practice and couldn't push any harder, he would convince himself that's the guy that attacked. So I'm sharing with you a championship mindset. I feel that I just got a little bit heavy and maybe, maybe I've kind of taken some of the spirit away from this topic, but that's really what Tony was doing, and it was very fascinating. It was very fascinating that Tony had studied Khabib to that point and was even able to dismiss some of the greatness as Tony's getting in there. That's how those upset happen. I mean, you wonder how a Buster Douglas can beat this guy, or right, that, that kid that just beat that Joshua guy. I mean, the upsets, the big upsets. You wonder how they happen, but they all have a story like that. There's something. There's something where this guy came out there different.
different. He was looking at it different. He wasn't fighting the resume. He was fighting the man. It's different. And even if that match didn't happen, I'm grateful for Tony for doing that. I found it very, very intriguing. I didn't want you guys to miss it. And I think you can have a debate. If you go and do a sport, but you change the rules. I see this in jujitsu a lot where somebody will go into jujitsu, but then they'll enforce some rule that's unique to that match. Well, if you change one rule, you're now not doing that sport. If you look at the rules of checkers and chess, and I realize that they're different. Don't be a dick about it. But you're talking about something pretty similar. You got pieces on a similar looking board with some different colors and you're trying to, I mean, it all fit, right? But you change a couple of rules. Well, now you call it checkers and you call the other one chess. You change a rule. What's the difference if you change 10 rules? If you change a rule, you've changed the sport. That's the point that Tony's trying to make. I think it's interesting. Dana was waiting on TJ Dillashaw and he said he is not ruling out the possibility of TJ Dillashaw coming back, walking right into a title fight. Interesting for a few reasons, right? Because TJ's saying the same thing and TJ's not being a jerk about it. TJ's going, man, I'm not telling you guys I'm going to do a title shot. My impression has always been when I come back, I'm getting a title shot. Now, before you guys get your panties in a bunch, there is a history behind this. I could bring Anderson Silva into it by example. I could bring John Jones into it multiple times by example, where that is the way it works. And if you're forgetting when TJ went out, TJ was the champion of the world. They stripped him of his belt. I mean, as part of his punishment, he was the sitting champion of the world. Two years ago, quick history lesson, not only the champion of the world who was pursuing the, the very coveted champ champ status. So it wouldn't be unrealistic that a guy come back for a title that he never lost. At the same time, from a PR perspective, if, if you want to get worked up, I'm not going to be the guy to push back and then, have, you know, well, chill, that's because you were in his shoes and you're defending. I'm more just making a statement for you that historically speaking, he's not the first guy to stub his toe. He wouldn't be the first guy. He wouldn't even be the second guy to walk right back in and be given an opportunity to pick up where he left off. Before you look at that side of the coin as him getting the favor, make sure you see the other side of the coin, which is the sitting champion who would like to close the book on any doubt, who doesn't want people walking around going, well, yeah, you're the champion while TJ's out. He is now getting an opportunity and he's getting what he wants. So if you give TJ what he wants, that's the only way you can give the sitting champion what he wants. Otherwise, you're punishing the sitting champion, Peter, who did nothing wrong. Make sure you think of it from that perspective. Just when the PR and the politics come in, you go, I don't want this guy to get what he wants. But Jan did nothing wrong. And this is what Jan would want. Keep that in mind. Not my, not my overarching argument here. I thought it was interesting that Dana said that because something's going on in that division. There, there, there's been a fox in the hen house in that division for eight months now. And we've never got to the bottom of it. It stayed very quiet. But when Aljo defeated Sanhagen in like 40 seconds, a shocking match, things could not have gone any better for Aljo that night. But when he did that, we were told extremely clearly that the winner of that contest would be fighting the winner of Aldo versus Jan. And that fight not only hasn't happened, that fight didn't even get signed until recently. That fight didn't even get signed until Sanhagen took a microphone and ruined his own immediate future, right? I mean, you guys remember that? They weren't giving Aljo that fight. And all of a sudden, Sanhagen is in a, in a featured match. And it appeared that, hey, if Sanhagen looks good, we're going to swipe this Aljo business and we're going to go with Corey. Not only does Corey look good, he looked highlight real good. You guys remember the spinning wheel kick and he catches him on the, I mean, just a video game. It looks like Demetrius Johnson level stuff out there. They're about to pull the Montreal screw job on Aljo until Sanhagen takes the microphone and says, yeah, yeah you know, I know Aljo's next and I'll, I'll wait in line behind him. I go, uh, okay, well, I guess we got to give it to Aljo. Now, I only bring that to you because what happened there? I don't know. I don't know. Aljo is saying he wants to fight. I've never heard anything different. 
but it was looking as though something was happening behind the scenes. The organization had been very clear to say, we want the winner of Sanhagen Aljo to have the fight, which we acknowledge in front of the world was Aljo. But then they weren't giving the fight. I'm just saying something weird has been going on there. Now it appears, okay, Aljo and, and, and Jan are gonna settle business, but now we're hearing this talk that, that TJ could just walk right in. I mean, something is going on at 135 and has been for a period of time that we haven't got to the bottom of. And if you go in any direction with TJ that is not a road that leads directly to Uriah Faber's door, I think it's a miss. And I would have no problem. I'll tell you right now, I got no problem if TJ comes right back in. Rob Fawn had made a comment. He said, uh, it'll be interesting to see TJ come back for the psychological, the mental side of him not having the substances. And that's very real. You can read stuff on that. They will talk about guys that use performance enhancers that when they don't have them, that psychologically, they think, oh, I can't do this now, right? Popeye without his spinach. He-Man without his sword. Right, I mean, it's one of those things, for some reason, I don't predict that's gonna happen with TJ. And for that some reason, guys like Cub Swanson, guys like Juan Archuleta, that see TJ in the room day in and day out, knew him back when he was using that stuff, know him now when he's not, they say he's better now. And I, these are closed doors talk. These aren't his buddies coming out on ESPN and trying to get their friend over. That's not what it is. I'm, if you run into Cub Swanson in the lobby of a hotel one-on-one, -on -one, you go, hey man, how's TJ doing? His face will light up and he'll tell you, man, he's working hard than ever. He's thrashing around like he never has before. Archuleta says the same thing. They say he's better now than he was then privately. This is what they will tell you privately. I think that means something, right? I mean, a guy comes in with a reputation like anybody else. Reputation on Dillashaw is he's on fire right now. So does he come in for the time? I, I don't know where he's going to go. I know what I want. I, I Him and Uriah have got to get together. They just have to get together. And if TJ goes and fights for a belt, TJ's probably winning a belt. I don't know that Uriah wants to go into a five-round main event world title. Maybe he does. I don't know that he does. I think the more likely way to get these guys together in a fight that has to have, this fight has everything on it that Colby and Masvidal has. It's the same fight. It's the same story. It is the same. This has to happen. This isn't a rankings issue. This isn't a big cash grab. This fight, this fight has two, some guys have to fight. Favor and Dillashaw got to fight. I will tell you something that irritates me. And this is quite possibly the silliest thing that I would take my time to be irritated about. I wish I wasn't this way. I wish I I could change my psychology and just sit back and enjoy the show and not this is a silly th I'll admit that up front this is a silly thing it drives me crazy how influential MMA fighters managers trainer media and fans are to a new saying if there's a new saying that one guy does it just like becomes verbiage within the industry I still remember the night when Robbie Lawler had like a controversial fight and grabbed the mic and said, then let's run it back. Now, that's obviously a football term, but it had never ever in the history of MMA been used in that context. Let's run it back. That's all anybody says now. If they're going to do a match again, it doesn't matter if you're an announcer, a commentator, a promoter, a manager, a trainer, a fellow athlete, a fan, somebody on the underground forum, let's run it back. And they all said it as though like this was a vernacular that had always been used instead of saying, I watched Robbie Lawler. Michael Bisping, something had happened and Bisping had made the comment he was gutted. He got some news that had to do with somebody else and he goes, man, I was gutted by the news. That is not a term we would use in America. That is a hunting term that is disgusting. That is where you stick your buck knife into some, and you rip it and you pull its intestines out to clean it before you put it on the table for your family. It's a disgusting term. But Michael Bisping used it and Michael Bisping's cool and now the kids on the underground, when they get news 
that they don't like will say, they are gutted. I am gutted by the news. That's not even an American expression. And for the walks of life that have to use it, specifically hunters, it's a very gross term. Daniel Cormier comes out and he tells Curtis Blades, I respect you, but you will never share the octagon with me. Everybody that's about to fight somebody now says share the octagon. Well, you know, I'm about to share the octagon with him. Well, you know, I think that he and I should share the octagon. Well, you know, the other night when I was sharing the octagon with so as though it's a common vernacular as opposed to I ripped off Daniel Cormier. It's just one of those things, no big deal. We all learn new words. I hear somebody say so. I'm no different. I think it sounded cool. I come and workshop it somewhere else, hoping they didn't hear him say it. Maybe I get credit for it. Maybe I get called on it, whatever. Very normal. For some reason in MMA, it will never cease to drive me crazy. And the one that we are currently living in is levels. A phrase coined by Corey Anderson two days before he fought and upset the undefeated rising star of Johnny Walker. Main card match at Madison Square Garden. No, that's not true. They undercarded that one, didn't they? At Madison Square Garden, Corey Anderson was a three and a half to one underdog, and Corey was as calm and cool as could be before the fight. And he said, Man, I don't care about I don't care about Walker's unblemished record or my record that's got three scrapes on it. There are levels to this, and he is not at this level. Then he goes out, he stops Walker handily handily stops him and makes this statement. He simply says, I told you guys, there's levels to this. It was really cool when Corey did it. I'm not saying it wasn't cool when Daniel did it or when Robbie Lawler did it or the phrase uh, that uh, Cormier hit us with. I'm not saying it wasn't a cool phrase. I'm saying it's his phrase. So now everybody's talking about levels. Like ever since Corey Anderson did that, all you can hear about is the levels, which brings me to Conor McGregor. The guy who generally drops the gems is now talking about, I'm gonna stop Poirier inside of 60 seconds because there's levels to this. Followed up by Connor's trainer coming out and talking about the levels to this. What a, what a bunch of weirdos. I mean, that's just a weird thing to say, well, there's levels to it. What are you talking about? If you go hit a guy on the chin while his hands are down and you're a professional fighter in four ounce gloves, you had better bet the fight's over. Otherwise, you suck at what you do. There are not levels to this. This is competition. There is grit. Then there's some of the most basics of just speed and power and length. Connor is lightning fast, very accurate, and a lot of power on it. Is that levels? Tell me about there's levels. We got a purple belt named Israel Adesanya, who's the undefeated champion of the world. A purple belt in jiu-jitsu just shut down an Olympic silver medalist in grappling. There's no levels to it. One guy's a better fighter than the other guy. It's one of these weird terms, by the way. And the, the mountain I'm going to die on is not the one of whether there's levels or whether there's shut up shut up and quit stealing other guys terms Francis Ngannou, I saw this headline and the headline says something like 18 seconds in all of 2020 you know however long Francis's fight was and that was the only match that he had and then and that was the headline then it weighed in on Francis and Francis is saying yeah I'm frustrated I don't know what I'm doing and I appreciated that he said that because I always thought that Francis was in on the gag. Like, we, you know, they, they put him on ice. He's not going to fight until he fights for a championship. If Cormier beats Stipe and Cormier retires and it's a vacant, I mean, he didn't even know what that meant or who that could be against, and they held him out. And the reason that's interesting is to me is they've never done that before. That's a broad stroke, but I'm pretty damn good at this. I can't think of anybody they have held. I can think of lots of guys who've said, I'm going to wait. I'm going to sit and wait. It doesn't work that way. People forget about you. Francis was different, and he is different. There is a responsibility to booking Francis Ngannou. You can be a top fighter in the world. He will send you to the emergency room on a stretcher. You can't just put Francis in there. 
You just can't. Ethically, you just can't. You gotta put him in there with somebody who can defend themselves. It's a very unique spot. I don't think it's one that Francis appreciates. I don't know that Francis is gonna like hearing me say that, but that's the reality. You gotta you gotta hold this guy out till the right time. Something that you guys may not understand, I have seen more fighters break outside of the octagon than I have in. I had one of the most talented teammates and name was Jeremy. Back when we were, I was 19 years old, going to school at the University of Oregon, and I knew this is what I wanted. So I'd go to wrestling practice, and at night I'd go across town, I go into kickboxing and fight with these guys. And, and Jeremy's career ended with zero fights. He was booked to fight four times. And this was a different world back then. I'm going back to 1997. It was a totally different world. The UFC was on TV five to six times a year, by example. Pride had not even been created yet. Strike Force, WEC, Bellator, the Ryzen, 1FC, PFL, the names were not even created. It was a totally different time. So even to catch a fight in a small organization on the hope of being seen and make it to TV one day, I mean, it was just a rare thing. It was really hard to do. I tie that in because Jeremy worked really hard at this. He had a very good skill. And he was a young guy. You know, he's making a, a young guy wage at a young guy job. I remember he worked at the Taco Bell. You went through the drive-thru and he was the guy that's, you know, can I take your order? But it was, it was hard. Him getting these hours in and him figuring out how to stay alive while getting in the practice room. Then he gets a match lined up. There's no contracts. There's no agreements. It's something over the phone. Now he's cutting weight. He's sacrificing everything. He's cutting down on hours at a job that he really needs. This was just his situation. You'll hear a lot like this. But it was his situation. I bring it to you because I tie it in with Francis. Well, I'm not predicting for you that Francis is going to quit. I'm just offering you an example. Like Jeremy, who's one of the most talented guys I've ever been in the room with, he ended up never fighting. He did everything. He went through the camps. He cut the weight. He did everything. He was booked four different times. Drove out to the event. Something happened where the other guy didn't show up for the... I remember 1997, he ended up not, he never fought to this day. said, I can't do this anymore. I cannot chase this anymore. And I see that all the time, particularly in the amateurs, right? I'm a big wrestling fan, but I'm a big gymnastics fan too, big amateur boxing fan. I see this all the time where that sport is about who's the best for sure. They have a competitive architecture for sure. But one of the ways to make sure you're that guy is to hang in longer than the field. It's amateur athletics and a very large part of that pie of everything that it takes. A large part is being able to hang in on that grind longer than the guy standing next to you. I think it's relevant when Francis is talking about he's frustrated. We're not going to lose Francis. That's not That's not where I'm going with this. I'm just sharing with you guys, I have seen more people broke outside of the octagon than in, by far. I have seen more careers end outside of the octagon with some level of frustration, some level of being holed up, some level of I couldn't get motivated than I have in. I understand that this isn't what what's going to happen with Francis. I understand that. But you need to understand when Francis talks and you look at him as this great big scary monster and everything's going his way and the guys want to be like him and the girls want to date him. Yeah, okay. But he's that's still a guy. That's still a person. That's still a human being that just has regular emotions and feelings and drives. And he is talking about his motive. I don't even know what I'm doing. Those are, he used those words. I'm not paraphrasing. That's a quote. He said, I don't know what I'm doing. I mean, I don't know. Am I in camp right now? Am I watching the scale right now? Am I getting the extra wind sprints in? Am I on a break? I don't, I don't even know what I'm doing. So what, what we were led to believe, and I tend to still think this has some legs to it, that that championship is going to be contested in March to April, which really is upon us. That's coming right up. Listening to Francis, it sounds as though, you know, maybe his phone hasn't rang. Maybe he's not, maybe, maybe we're not as close on that match, which just lends to, well, then what do you do? You can only make him wait so long. Stipe gets to wait, right? The champion can hold everybody up. He can. Francis doesn't want to wait, but Dana can't just put him in there. 
But do you guys do you guys see the difference? I really want you to understand the difference. You can't just put Francis in there. There's a responsibility. You can talk about who the best fighter is, and you can talk about the toughest fight. You can have all these fun conversations. The scariest fighter is Francis. There is no conversation. And there's not one of you that disagrees with me. The actual fear factor of who's going to get hurt tonight. The scariest guy is Francis. Just like when Mike Tyson used to fight. But Dana's not going to be the scumbag that, that Don King was and just throw anybody in there to carry it out on a highlight reel. Dana's going to do his job and book him responsibly. Be patient. Daniel Cormier made a statement that Hooker and Chandler, as an undercard act to Conor McGregor versus Poirier, need to take full advantage of being on the card with Conor McGregor. And Daniel's absolutely right. And I read some of the comments of the article where Daniel made that statement. People said, well, what's, what's the difference? I'm a little confused by the question. There's a tremendous difference. What Daniel's talking about is so many eyeballs are going to be on Conor McGregor that even if on accident, they're going to be on you, right? Obviously, people want to see Chandler and Hooker fight. These are two stars. I'm talking about everybody on the card Daniel singled those two out. Everybody on the card is in a unique opportunity for exposure. So when Daniel's talking about taking full advantage, he's talking about, yeah, there's going to be some pressure there, but make sure you come out, make sure you perform in every aspect of it, not only with the punches and the kicks, make sure you look cool when you do it. Make sure you comb your hair before you go on TV. Make sure you have something to say when the fight is over. That's what Daniel's talking about. You're going to have the ability to influence a whole lot of people, including the casual. You guys hear this term a lot, the casual fan, but I know, I'm not sure because we're also close to it. I am too. But we as a group here are so close to this that we're the hardcores. We know everything that's going on and we forget that we're the hardcores. When you talk about the casual fan, make sure you understand this. Think of it as a pie, right? The old school pie chart from high school. But of that pie, 15% is a hardcore. 15% of the audience is us. No matter what, no matter what platform, we're smart enough and we care enough. We follow it close enough that we're going to know. Is this on ESPN Plus? Is it on ESPN 2? Is it on Big ESPN? At what point do I switch over to pay-per-view? Is it Wednesday night? Is it Saturday night? Is it Sunday morning? We know all of those things, but we're 15%. As far as a business and an industry goes, that's not sustainable. You need to draw each time you can draw into as big of a pool of that other 85% as possible, and Conor McGregor is what represents that. Conor's not just a star because he can evoke emotion from us, the 15% of the hardcore. We're going to watch anyway. For the business side of it and for the industry, you need as much of that other 85% as you can possibly get. On a night like Conor, you're going to tap into that heavily, which is what Daniel's speaking of. What Daniel's speaking to is that you go and you get your share of that 85%. The real money is in the 85%, the casual, the little old lady in Iowa is how it was explained to me. The little old lady in Iowa that would never watch fighting, but she comes across it and something makes her stop and stay and watch. That's the casual. And that ultimately is who you really are going to make your bread and butter on. And Daniel's, Daniel's fully correct. There's going to be some new eyeballs and there's going to be some new attention. We get these fighters that are so close to it. Oftentimes they don't see it. I give Sandhagen a hard time. Sandhagen is a great guy from everything that I know. Sandhagen stepped on a landmine that was his own doing, and I only bring it to you because he was so out of touch with his own division. His own division. He had all of these new eyeballs on him that he could have influenced that don't know anything. They don't know who a TJ Dillashaw is. They don't know what an Aljo Sterling is. They don't even know what it is, let alone who it is. And Sandhagen informed all of them that they should be fighting for the championship in front of him. So I give Corey a hard time, but I, I don't mean to be 
a dick about it. It's just an example that you can catch on to that happened recently. You have to know what's going on, including knowing who doesn't know what's going on. This all ties back into what a hard time I've been giving fighters that have a ranking and how closely tied they are to that ranking and only want to fight guys ranked in front of them. Nobody else knows. Nobody has the foggiest idea. You were on TV in a professional atmosphere and you won or you didn't. That's what they're going to know. If you act excited to win, they're going to assume that you weren't supposed to win. If you act bothered to lose, they're going to assume you were just upset. There is a way to behave. That is why the expression a picture is worth a thousand words exists. And you can't get too close to your own career. You got to stand back. I think that this is a, a perfect opportunity to make that title fight that night at the press conference. Every single time we've ever seen a press conference, somebody in the media doing their job will ask Dana what is next for fill in the blank. Dana has to respond the same time every single time, which is let's see what happens. Meaning I don't know. I got to go back. I got to sit down with a group of thinkers. We got to see who's healthy, who feels good, who's licensed, wh what the calendar looks like, and then make some phone calls and make matches. That's what he's saying when he says, let's see. I don't know. That's what he's saying. This is one of those rare times where he could know by the time he got to the press conference, right? Whoever wins between Chandler and Hooker is going to matter. Whoever wins between Khabib and Poirier is going to matter. And by the way, we got to go on the working assumption that Khabib is not coming back. And frankly, it doesn't hurt business one way or the other, even if Khabib does come back. Doesn't hurt anything. If Khabib returns to try to reclaim the champ, that's the only chance Khabib's going to get to have to be a two-time champion. To be a two-time champion, you have to have lost the belt somewhere in there. You hear these guys that try to break, I've won the title more than anybody. I've won it five times. Okay, but that means that you lost it five times. It's one of those things that some of the greats started to try to change the rules. You remember Matt Hughes was making his, nobody could touch Matt Hughes. Matt's whipping everybody's ass. So then Matt on his own, and wisely so, there's a compliment to Matt, but on his own, inaccurately, but wisely, came out and started calling himself a champion for each time that he defended the championship. So Matt became a four-time champion. And this was starting to get reported by people. Now that's not how sports work. You have to lose the championships to come back and get it. I'm not faulting Matt, I'm complimenting Matt, but I'm also sharing how hard it is to become a two-time champion. You either got beat and climbed your way all the way back, which is honorable, or you're Khabib and you lost it somewhere in the paperwork. And then you came back to get it. It's one of those things, but either way, it was the only opportunity he's going to have to become a two-time champion is if they take the damn thing from him at some point in between. Now, that's a side thought. I digress into that, but let's refocus on there is a very good chance that for the first time ever, Dana White can show up to a press conference and say he is fighting him for the title. And by the way, Dana might even have a date, right? I mean, if he can talk to these guys and the winner was pretty clear and he can kind of see, hey, nobody's hurt. They've already decompressed through the commission. They've already met with the doctors. Hey, they got no broken bones here. We got this, that. There's a chance that he could even make a date. I'm probably stretching. Even if Dana can come to a press conference and identify this fighter is fighting this fighter, it's going to be for the gold. He likely will not have a date. But just imagine if he did. I mean, that would make for a press conference kind of must-see TV. You would not want to miss that. That would be a major, major fight announcement, and we would have major, major talking points instantly, which then is also going to make you play through the whole division of, okay, Khabib's gone great working assumption. Where's Oliveira go? I guess the rumors of Oliveira and Gaethje are going to have to be true because they're the only players left on the board that seem to matter that are near each other in skill. See where that gets fun. Now, Poirier was weighing in on the fight, and Poirier said, I want this to be a bloody fight. I want blood within the first 60 seconds. That is a very interesting glimpse into the mindset of Poirier. Poirier said that is the only way if this is a grimy fight and we're both hurt and we both have to overcome and push through that pain, that is the only way to find out who the real fighter is. And even though that doesn't sound like a scenario that any of you would ever want to be in, Poirier is letting us into his mindset and it is very interesting. And by the way, he's right. And that
that even carries over to life. And you may not have to bleed from the eye and have your nose crooked and, and broken to discover that, but he is making a very good point. Until things get hard and things get tough for your adversary, that is the only way to know who wants this the most, who is willing to push and who's willing to be in there. I don't think that Connor would offer that same assessment. I don't think Connor's going into the fight thinking, yeah, man, I want to be hurt within a minute. I want to have to dig deep. I think Connor's thinking, no, I want to protect myself. I want to touch him. I want to not get touched. I want to start closing out rounds, look for the finish, boom, go in there, shark that smells blood and get him out of here. That's the way Connor fights. But Poirier is offering something different. And this isn't tough guy talk. You go follow Poirier's career and you go follow his greatest moments. His greatest moments would be against Hooker. His greatest moments would be against Gaethje. It would be against Eddie Alvarez. Those were those really great fights, but they are reminiscent of what Poirier is saying he would like to duplicate, which is two guys hurt, two guys that can exit stage left at any time and not have the audience ever looking down or questioning their harder toughness. They've shown us more than most humans ever owe. That is when he's done his finest work. And while one of his more meaningful matches was definitely that against Max Holloway, if you want to look at his best matches, it's ones that describe what he just said he would like to duplicate against Connor. There was a book written by Coach Beasley. It's called The Perfect Match. And in the entire book, the premise is very simple, which is think of whenever you had your best performance. And that can even be, by the way, where you did not triumph. Your greatest perform, where you performed your best can even be within defeat. But think of when that was. And then work backwards as to what happened leading into it. What did you have for breakfast that day? What were you wearing? Who did you see that day? What conversation did you have? What music, if any, did you hear on the radio? How much did you sleep the night before? How long did you spend in the shower? I mean, get as detailed as you possibly can to work back what you did. How did you warm up? Who'd you warm up with? For how long did you warm up? Break as many things as you can possibly recall, write them down, and then duplicate it. Go back and try to copy that day, that moment, and that performance as best as you possibly can. And keep it and don't ever change it until you have a better performance and then do that thing again. I only bring that to you because I do think that that is what Poirier is explaining. That is not tough guy talk. If you go back and you look at the career of Dustin Poirier, That is when he does his finest work. He does his finest work when the house is on fire. The WBC president, Baricio Schulman, has come out and said that Conor McGregor is one win away from fighting for a world championship in boxing. And this was met by tremendous pushback by the boxing community, right? Most of us want to give a damn either way. The competitive architecture and the honesty and the legitimacy within a boxing championship is questionable at best. But within the boxing community, that's a very real thing. They've learned to work in with the confines of the ridiculousness and they've put their lives on hold, many of them, to try to pursue a dream. Got to be sensitive as well as respectful to that fact. And the community pushed back on Shulman uh, tremendously. And I will just tell you, let's take a little bit closer look at that. Before you think that boxing is dirty for having said that, I'm not sure we wouldn't say that with an MMA. We would show a tremendous respect to any combat athlete who then came over to MMA, even if it was to make their debut. If they were a multiple time by example, jiu-jitsu champion, or uh, use Jordan Burroughs, who is just on Joe Rogan's podcast. A multiple-time world and Olympic champion was to come over to MMA. There is certain matches that if they had, and yes, just one, that you could see where they would be going right in for a championship, right? I mean, there is plenty of matches that if Jordan Burroughs, I'll use him by example, I think you guys are familiar, he just did Joe Rogan, is why I think you guys might be familiar. Total stud, dominated his field, not only the best of his time, by many they believe to be the 
best of all time. If he was to come over into MMA, he would have a meaningful match right out of the gate. They are not going to use him and undercard him. He could be in Bellator, UFC, any organization, any way you want to do it, he's going to be put into a feature match, which means he's going to have a pretty tough opponent. He's not going to walk in against the number two or three guy, but he's going to walk in with a meaningful opponent. And if he had a certain performance that could catapult him right into a title shot, absolutely. I realize the example that I just gave you has never happened, but it would. If we brought over some certain stuff, I mean, use Clarissa Shields, by example, she had never done MMA and they were talking about her coming over right in and stepping in against Amanda. And the story would be pretty easy to tell. One, she meets the weight limit. Two, she's a fantastic competitor. And three, the competitiveness in her where she won two Olympic gold medals happened to be in a form of combat known as boxing, which makes for very interesting, intriguing matchup against Amanda, who has ran through everybody else. So even though that didn't happen, I think that we would be accepting of what Shulman is stating had it happened here. And he's using a mythical scenario too. He's not saying, hey, Connor, just come over and take on anybody. He realizes that if Connor comes over and has a boxing match, it's going to be against a meaningful opponent because Connor's only going to do it for a meaningful payday, which can only happen with a meaningful opponent. He's not saying come over, fight one of the Paul brothers, and as long as you get a W, I'll throw you in there with Canelo. It's not what he's saying at all. I realize he did not use very many words. You have to read into what he's saying, but he's taking realisticness, using objectiveness, and saying, Connor, if he had another fight, it's going to be meaningful. I mean, the names thrown at him are, are Canelo, are uh, uh, Manny Pacquiao. It's going to be a big fight. It's going to be a big a rematch with Floyd. It's going to be a big and meaningful fight that is likely to absolutely never happen, but if it did, which is what he spoke to, and he got a win, sure, he could draw right into the top guy. I don't hate that idea as much as many, and I and I, I do hate the rewriting of the story of Conor versus Floyd. I have never personally witnessed a sports story more mistold than that one. It pains people to admit that Conor, who had zero experience, went a half an hour with the best that that industry ever had. It pains them. It pains them to the point that to, to pull Conor down, whatever it takes to pull Conor down, they were willing to burn Floyd, the greatest talent that their industry had ever seen, who capped it off at a perfect 50-0 with the win over the Irishman. They were so adamant to not give Conor his due for what he did that they were willing to say Floyd was old. Floyd was done. Floyd stopped training after that fight. Popped into Japan against the sitting world kickboxing champion. Knocked him down and got him out of there all in 90 seconds after not training. A year plus after the match with McGregor where Floyd was said to be rusty and old and over the hill. He got called out by Canelo. He got called out by De La Hoya. He got called out by Pacquiao. Guys who all of which you respect. All of which if they were to fight, Floyd would go, Floyd would go off as the betting favorite. So it was insincere is my point. When people try, in the boxing community tried to pull Floyd down when all they wanted to do was diminish Connor. When they were doing that, they weren't willing to bet that way. Floyd would have gone off as the favorite. They would say one thing, but if they had to part with their money, they would have put it on Mayweather. So once we've now established that Floyd was none of the things of old, tired, once we establish that, we're then left with the only reality that is left, which is Connor did a damn good job. Turns out Connor's really good at boxing. Just how far can he go? So I don't know that the premise really speaks to the poor state of affairs for boxing. Boxing is in a poor state of affairs, but it always has been. That's not new. Anybody that comes out with this revelation that boxing doesn't know what they're doing and the competitive architecture is terrible and the champions that they list are unproven, unchallenged, and unworthy, that just makes you a new boxing fan. It's been that way forever. They are going to pick two people that they think can, can draw more than flies and put them at the top of the bill for the cheesiest belt in all of sports. I have seen little league trophies that cost more money than the WBA, WBC, IBF world championship belt. 
It is on a piece of pleather. It's not even leather. The metal on there is nothing more than that. It is not gold. It is not silver. It is not titanium. It is not precious in the least. Those belts with markup so that the guy that made them gets to make a profit. Those belts cost $314 and I can tell you the exact website to go to to get them. I only offer that to you because you're make-believing that this world championship means if it meant something, it wouldn't have a $300 belt. Retail value. I mean, I'm, ju I'm just trying to make this point. Yes, if you think that boxing is corrupt and in a sad state, you're right, but it's not new. It's terrible. There's a reason the NCAA doesn't recognize it. There's a reason there's no high school in the lands that does it. There's a reason there's no junior high. There's a reason you can't get a college scholarship on any level to do it. Yes, it's a really crappy sport. You either enjoy watching it or you don't, but the leadership is awful. Sure, Conor McGregor won one fight away. Sure, according to Sulman, where he's wrong is if Conor wants to walk in right now, Canelo will put that strap up. If Conor wants to walk in right now, Anthony Joshua will put the belt up. Any weight class, any play, any way you want to do it. Conor is not one win away. Conor is one signature away from fighting for the title. All right, guys, David Taylor, Jordan Burroughs, tonight, going down on flow. So take a closer look at this match. First off, how did we get here and why do we have a match on Wednesday? Okay, match was supposed to happen on Saturday, but there was something with COVID and neither guy had COVID. There was something with COVID. COVID tracing, COVID tracking, tied into one of these athletes. So both guys were already in town. They kept them, extended their hotels, set up tonight's match. Just sharing with you why there's a Wednesday night extravaganza. Now, this is a match that David Taylor has always wanted. David Taylor had a shot at Jordan Burroughs and the last time he had that shot, he had the lead. You guys remember that match? They're right on the out of bounds. Taylor cradles him up. You don't see cradles in, in freestyle very often. Cradles him up and then rolls him through. Like think a gut wrench. He does a gut, but he has a cradle lock, takes him right out of bounds, scores two points. Burroughs has to come from behind with no time left. Four seconds, six seconds. Like the most dramatic thing that you could do, Burroughs does. Part of the legend of Burroughs is built around moments like that, but he pulls it off on David Taylor. Hard guy to pull that off on. David Taylor leaves the weight class. When he leaves the weight class, David Taylor goes into arguably the hardest draw in the history of the world championships. Unarguably the hardest draw for any American in a world championship wins it. David Taylor's first match, put it in perspective, was against the defending Olympic champion. His second match was against the previous quadrennium's Olympic champion. These are his first two matches. Goes on, wins the whole thing. So Taylor has proven that he found the right weight class, okay? Not only to make the team, but to win the gold. And he also proves through that draw and that journey that they put the gold around the right guy's neck. He was truly the best wrestler on earth, but he's now in a different weight. How's he ever going to see Jordan Burroughs? Well, he called for it. He started calling out Jordan. Started calling him out on social media. It's not something Taylor loves to do, but he wanted this match. He did it in a friendly way. I wish he'd have been a little more aggressive personally, but he did it in a friendly way. And by the way, it worked. Flow came around, I assume with a certain uh, level of incentive in the form of money to get Burroughs' attention. Because you have to look at it now from Burroughs' standpoint, right? As much as Taylor was this close to beating JB, he didn't do it. So, but you have to consider that. So now it's really easy to see the motivation of Taylor. Think of it from Burroughs' standpoint. Why would Burroughs ever want to put that back on the line? I got you. By the way, you changing weights and you winning the world adds to my esteem. Why would I want to take the risk of giving you that back? So whatever the reason, the motivation, or the incentive, who cares? Burroughs gets full credit. That's a stud move. Burroughs is about to put it on the line on American soil against an American at the American's weight class. Relevant. Because if you start trying to break down who's going to win this match, you ultimately go into who's the better wrestler, and then you find yourself arguing resumes. Well, Taylor's a world champion, but Jordan's a five-time world champion. It's not about resumes, okay? It's a very specific matchup that has to do with motivation. We've identified what Taylor's is. Redemption. That's a strong one. That's a strong motivation.
location. We now can identify what Burroughs is, which is he's a stone cold competitor and he got called out. Big motivation. So now you really have to look at the X's and O's, which does not come down to the ankle picks of Taylor or the double legs of Burroughs. It comes down to the weight. That's the intangible, right? The definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. We're not doing the same thing over again, though the rules are still freestyle. UWW, where the time is still three and three, where the rounds are still two, while the competitors are still JB versus David Taylor, we have changed one significant part, which is the weight. We've been told our whole life there's a size advantage. They will set two guys are getting ready to box. Who does the advantage go to? The size advantage. We have never really seen size be an advantage. We have seen size as a disadvantage. The hardest guy in the world to wrestle is the is the guy one weight class below you. Hardest guy. Just endurance, he's not carrying as much weight. Just speed, the most important thing you can have in any form of combat is going to obviously go to him. That's just basic sense. Well, David Taylor's got a different style. David Taylor doesn't do a whole lot from the open. He does everything once he gets his hands on you. If he can get his hands on Jordan Burroughs and then use that size, that's going to slow Jordan down. It's not going to make Taylor faster, but it's going to slow Jordan down. All of a sudden, you're saying the same thing. Jordan going up in size, for me at least, adds credit and respect to Jordan, but it puts a lot of pressure on David Taylor. If you are the world champ, you're the best wrestler in the world, but you can't beat a guy from a weight class below no matter how good he is. If a guy from a weight class below brings you down, it's problematic to your reign. So Taylor's got a lot on the line, but the other side of the coin, he saw as more seductive in the form of redemption. So Burroughs going up, Burroughs always has such pressure on him. He doesn't have the same level of pressure. What's that going to do? Well, time's going to find out. If I was to make a prediction for the match, I believe David Taylor's going to win this match. David Taylor could have been beat him and almost beat him many years ago. David Taylor now has the confidence of a world championship and he has 20 pounds of muscle on his side, at least in theory, right? He's taking on not only what is believed to be by many the greatest wrestler of all time, he is taking on the single greatest competitor that I have witnessed. Hard stop. I'm not saying in wrestling. I'm not saying in combat. I'm not saying in gymnastics. I'm not saying in foosball. I'm saying that I've ever seen, period. The single greatest competitor I've ever I've, I've ever witnessed is Jordan Burrow, the best wrestler in the world at this weight class is David Taylor. They're at Taylor's weight class. Guys, we've seen something close to this one other time. And that is the time and possibly the only time I can bring for you where the bigger guy wins. When I make the statement to you, the hardest guy to wrestle is the guy from one weight class below you. It's very true and history's on my side. I do have one exception. Sergei Belaglazov, who was a two-time Olympic champion at 125 and a half pounds. That was the weight class at the time. Came out to New York and he did a one-off in a dual meet against the reigning Olympic champion at that weight class known as 136 and a half pounds named John Smith. This was supposed to be the biggest wrestling match of all time. It possibly was the biggest wrestling match on paper, resume versus resume of all time. The match was anything but competitive. Smith picked him apart, I believe 7-0. If I have that wrong, it was 7-1. Absolutely picked him apart, but Sergey didn't lose any face because people were able to say that Smith was the bigger athlete. True, but history tells a different story. History tells us that size is not an advantage, it is a disadvantage. History is a chance to be rewritten tonight. Figueroa is calling for a bantamweight matchup with Henry Cejudo. Interesting for multiple reasons, starting with Henry Cejudo is not the bantamweight champion. So if Figueroa gets his way, he is going to walk away, at least for one night, from his championship to go to a weight class to compete with Triple C with no belt on the line. It's really never been done before, which is why I think you would be foolish to predict that it is going to happen. I just want to talk about the what if. The champ is making a call out. A lot of people are trying to get Henry back. For Henry to come back, which looks like a real stubborn stance right now, but for him to come back, it's going to take the right guy. And
in the right matchup. I, he might have just found it. Figueredo versus Henry is very compelling. I like the story more that there's no championship on the line. That it is it's a personal. It's about it's about proving a point. I'm into that kind of thing. That's the kind of thing that you're gonna like if you're the kind of person that likes that kind of thing. I happen to be that guy. I'll, I, you'll have me hooked on that. You're not gonna hook Dana, which is why I'm telling you we're very light on this. But look at the topic anyway, because what is Figueredo trying to achieve? Is he trying to bring Henry back? Is he trying to get a big fight? Is he trying to take a night off from having to cut weight? Is he trying to get out of the rematch with Moreno? There's no wrong answer to any of these things, but I do like the idea very much of Figueredo, who's not only a proven talent, he is proving himself as a star. But when we have this conversation 12 months from now, that point will be proved. He will be a star. He's on his way right now. But right now, when you have a good draw, you always have to add the caveat of a comma for that division. And that's true. It's different. They haven't had those mega fights. That's That caveat is going to be gone by this time next year. Uh, next year. Figueredo's the guy to do it. Okay. But when you have a star that just had a, the hardest fight of his life, and they're trying to tell him that he has to go back and do it again, based on the consensus of quite simply, it was a really fun fight to watch. If he happens to not agree that he doesn't want to go do that again, he doesn't have a whole lot of choices. As the champion, you fight whoever you're asked to fight, or you're not the champion. If you're a captivating star in America's mind, or the world's mind, and you're coming out and you're refusing to do hard work, you, you just lost your spot. Unless you create a better idea. If that is what Figueredo's goal is, if he can be the one to lure Henry back, if he can go to 135 for the uh, for the fight to make it easy on Henry to make the weight class, making it more doable to do, which I think was the tactic of his negotiation, and he can avoid doing a fight that he doesn't want to do, all while never saying, I don't want to do that fight. I will respect that, and I will appreciate that. And I do not know that any of those things are at play right now. I have absolutely no information or evidence that he doesn't want to rematch Moreno. I have, I have no information or evidence that he's doing this for any reason other than the sincerity of what he said, which is, I want to fight Cejudo, and I'm will even willing to go up and wait to do it. At one point, a couple of weeks ago, he had made the same call out, and he had even offered a caveat of, let's put a lightweight BMF up for it. So you can start to have the fun with the market in any way that you want to go. I'm here to ask you a question. I'm asking you a simple question. First off, what is the play? Is the play here that he doesn't want to fight Moreno? Fine. I got no problem with that. And I also acknowledge that he should never come out and say that, particularly if he has to do it. He's now brought that into his orbit. He doesn't need that. So he hasn't said that. And secondly, and possibly moreover, and I'd like your opinion, because it's going to come down to your opinion. Is Figueredo the guy? Is he a big enough name? Is he seductive and interesting enough to be the guy that brings Henry back? Guys, you got to hear me out on something. My stomach is sick right now. My Okay. There's nothing worse than an eyewitness because your eyes play tricks on you and your memory will change things over a period of time. So I was just a witness to something. I happen to be talking to you guys right now. I'm going to document it so my mind doesn't play a trick on me. I was in traffic. I'm headed north on 205 at the Molala, Oregon City exit, pouring down rain, two cars back. Car too far, two cars in front starts to swerve, takes a sharp left straight into the concrete barrier. Okay, we're in what we call in Oregon the passing lane. Just means we're in the far left-hand lane, but the only thing that separates us from other traffic coming onward is a concrete wall so you can never swerve and hit it. This guy takes a sharp left. He hits this wall so hard and we're going 70. I'm going 70. He's right in front of me. He takes a, a, a left so hard. He hits this wall, comes to absolute zero, which is basic physics, and it shoots him the other way so hard that he goes across four lanes of traffic and comes to a stop only when he hits the concrete wall on that side. Meanwhile, I, when I see this happen, break a rule and drive it. If you're in a situation like that, according to the textbook, you are to stay in that same lane, even if it means you get in a wreck. You are not
not to swerve lanes. Fine. Human reaction, I swerved. And I remember when I swerved, I remember actually having a thought of being so happy that I didn't pull right into somebody over there. So now once I swerve, I'm playing this game of Frogger. The guy who is in the accident is now coming back. I thought he was going to hit that wall, come to a stop. I've swerved to not hit him. He's not, the car shooting him back. I'm about to T-bone him. The only reason I don't T-bone him is because between my brakes and the speed of which he's getting shot back at, he happens to miss, at which point I swerve back into the middle lane. The middle lane, even though we're now clear because we've passed this guy, that guy freaks out. He hits his brakes. There's nobody in front of him, but he's hitting his brake. I don't judge that guy. He'd never been in a trying situation, but that forces me to swerve yet another lane. When I swerve into that lane, I look in my rear view, guy's coming at me with his brakes slammed on, about to hit me. hes I know his brakes are slammed on because I can see his car and his back end is starting to fishtail because he's locked his brakes up so hard. So I punch the gas, and between him braking and me accelerating, he doesn't hit me. All the while, I'm on the phone with Joel, at which point I yell, Joel, call 911, get an ambulance to the Oregon City Malala exit right now. Joel hangs up when Joel called the police because he didn't have any information. He says, hey, call my buddy Chael at 503. So gives him my number. The police call me. Okay, fine. Everything's cool in the gang. I should have called the police directly. I was a little bit rattled. By the time they're calling me, I'm already mid-prayer thanking God and hoping that the guy that was involved is okay. I mean, this car did everything a car can do except for roll over and explode. And I'm assuming assumption, he must have lost a tire. Like, the way he pulled into the wall, it was such a sharp left turn. Like, it would have just be, you drop something, you, you move the wheel. That's not what happened, man. This car took a boom right into this wall. So I only had to run an errand. I was actually running to get my kid an ice cream at a 7-Eleven right up, right up the road. So I get that exit, I get the ice cream. When I'm coming back, now I drive past the scene of the crime. And the one thing I don't know, from my perspective, the only one hit was this guy. But what I don't know, because I'm at the front of the pack, is when so many brakes hit, was there a pileup? Like, did people start getting rear-ended? I don't know at this point. So as I come back, I look over, no, it was only that one car. And sure enough, ambulance on the scene, I'm assuming to get that guy out of there. The front end, it was a station wagon. It wasn't damaged to the point, like sometimes a car will hit its front end and it'll shove the engine back like right into the legs of the driver. I don't think that happened. So I have very good thoughts and prayers, but I think they've been answered and I believe the driver of that vehicle is okay. When I did come back by though, just to bring this to conclusion, they had a tow truck there and they were lifting it onto the flatbed of the tow truck with the crane, and that was the only car. So how this happened, how everybody's good fortune got smiled upon, how this did not end in a massive pileup, how I was able to play a game of Frogger. Have you ever had those life flash before your uh, eyes moments of any level? If you have, then you can relate. They're like that. They are an instant and everything. Guys, this was four seconds. That is the longest before your eyes moment I've ever been part of. Right? I'm in one lane. I see this. I'm in another lane. Okay, nothing. I'm in another lane, and I'm yet in a third, and then I see the rear view. Tight situation. I'm documenting it. There's my memory. Thanks for listening. All right, guys, fun week. We're going to have a fun few weeks. There is a lot going on. We're going to cover it all, and we're going to do it again on Friday. Until then, I'm Chael Sonnen. Thank you for listening. You're welcome. Yeah, we talk hoops on Robert Ory's new podcast, The Big Shot Bob Pod. I would have loved to play with LeBron because if you get down, get open, get to where you're supposed to be, he's going to find you. Feel like he got robbed for MVP. But with Robert Ory, we cover the floor and we talk about everything. And so your youngest so, is a teenager. So he's yeah. not going to high school right now. He's doing everything via Zoom and he's dad, can you help me? Nope, I'm running away. I'm running. <laughs> From the team that brought you the big podcast with Shaq, it's The Big Shot Bob Pod. Coming your way soon on the Podcast One app, Spotify, 
Spotify, Apple Podcasts, LiveByLive.com, and everywhere you get your favorite podcasts. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945.